Morning. Take your Bibles, find your way to Matthew 22. That's where we will begin this morning. So we continue our examination of, of walking like Jesus. And this morning, as you see, we'll look at it through the lens of uh, Jesus and the Word of God. Uh, how, how did Jesus relate to the Word of God? What relevance was the Word of God? All of these kinds of things are uh, before us this morning as we think about the role of Jesus or the role of the Word of God as it pertained to Jesus. And I want to begin with, a, I guess, an illustration story. One of the same. James Warren Jones, better known as Jim Jones, grew up with an affinity for Pentecostalism and a desire to preach God's word. And during the 1950s, he would be ordained in the Independent Assemblies of God denomination. And all throughout the 50s, Jones would increase in popularity, partly because he would share stages with prominent figures in the Pentecostal movement, particularly in the arena of faith healing. So this was a man who was drawn to this avenue or this area of uh, this ministry of healing people by faith. And Jones would go on to start the People's Temple. I don't know if you guys knew this. I learned this stuff this week. I did not know this about this fellow. Um, but J- uh, Jones would go on to start the People's Temple right here in Indianapolis. Uh, hopefully when I said right here, you didn't think I was going to say like southern Indiana. But Indianapolis is pretty close in 1955. And as Jones grew in popularity and stature, his reach would extend to the political arena, to civil rights issues, as well as to what he called Christian socialism. And in 1964, as his uh, pursuit or his growth continued, he would be ordained once again, this time by the disciples of Christ, a more liberal and denomination, and, and it was very much associated with freedom of biblical thinking. So there's a lot of room here. There's a lot of places for conversation. There's a lot of freedom or liberal position in interpreting Scripture. In 1965, Jones would take the temple that he started in Indianapolis, and he would relocate it in San Francisco. And all throughout the 70s, he further became involved in political issues and various causes. In the 60s, back up a little bit, the reports began to surface of abuse within the organization or the the, the people's temple. And, And as this happened, at the same time, Jones became increasingly vocal in his rejection of traditional Christianity and instead began promoting a a communistic society that he called apostolic socialism. And as you would expect, those who were a part of this commune were supposed to hand over all of their money, all of their land, all of their belongings. Everything that was theirs was no longer theirs when they became a part of this commune. Everything that they had became a part of the commune. And these requirements only increased throughout the 60s and 70s as Jones by this point now is referring to his own divinity That is to say, he's now equating himself with God to be divine, right, as to be of godly origins. So now this man, as we move through the 60s and 70s, he's referring to himself as a god. And so with control raging and over 3,000 members of the people's temple under the weight of abuse allegations and human rights abuses of various kinds, Jones constructed his socialist paradise in Jonestown, Guyana in West Africa. By now, some of you may recognize what we're talking about. 
And as reports continued to escalate, Jones convinced many of the 3,000 members to move to this commune in Guyana where the people would be free from the oppression of the United States government. Now, as you would imagine, the reports of abuse did not end once they moved. And the reports had reached the point that there was reason to believe that people were now being held against their will in this socialist paradise. So a delegation led by U.S. Representative Leo Ryan went to the commune to investigate these reports. And while, re- while boarding a return flight with some former temple members, some of the people, when they went there, some of the people said, we want out of here. We don't want anything to do with this. Get us out of here. So they go to board this, this plane with some of the members who now desire to defect. Rep- Representative Ryan and four others were murdered by gunsmen in Jonestown. So they were shot and they were killed. At this point, Jones is the leader of this movement, of this commune, this apostolic society in West Africa. He orders a mass murder-suicide to take place. And 909 members, including 304 children, died by drinking the Kool-Aid. You've heard this expression or phrase before. These individuals were duped to the point that their lives ended under the leadership and guise of a guy who convinced them to literally take their own lives by drinking Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide. Almost a thousand people. As we consider Jesus and we look at his word, Jesus deals with the root issue here. For both Jim Jones the one who convinced them to drink the Kool-Aid, to follow him, to give all of their belongings, all of their possessions, as well as the issue for the folks who were duped into drinking the Kool-Aid. And I don't want to make light of the situation, right? Like I use this illustration and I use a phrase like they were duped into drinking the Kool-Aid. Not to be insensitive, almost a thousand people died, right? So that's a big deal. But the reality of the situation is this. They were duped. They were fooled. And Jesus deals with the root issue, as we're going to see in God's word, of when it comes to being duped as the people were or out of control as Jim Jones was. Jesus, in a, in, in a passage here in Matthew 29, Jesus is being questioned by some religious leaders, the Sadducees. And they ask Jesus this question. We're going to look at it in a minute. But I want to start with his response to them. These Sadducees asked Jesus a question about the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection. They believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, and they said the Pentateuch doesn't teach on the resurrection, so we deny the resurrection. So they got this question that they're going to pose to Jesus, and they're going to trick him, and they're going to, they're going to prove to everybody that Jesus is a phony. And this is Jesus' opening remarks to their question. You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This statement from Jesus serves as a sharp rebuke to the Sadducees who would question Jesus based on their understanding of the word of God. As we've noted, these groups of religious people, religious leaders, they reject the reality of the resurrection And so they pose this question to trick Jesus. 
And Jesus, in the way that only he can, he not only answers their inquiry by telling them that their question is inaccurate, but he also challenges them to the reality of their question for him. And that reality is this. They don't know what God's word says. They pose this stumper. (laughs) We're going to get Jesus... We're going to ask him a question he's not going to be able to handle. And Jesus completely flips the scripts and says, the problem, Sadducees, is that you don't know the word of God. You pose this question based on the understanding that you have. But what you must understand is that you don't have right understanding of God's word. They don't know what God's word says. And the reality is that when we do not know what God's word teaches... We are setting ourselves up for disaster, okay? And it, you, you may not profess to be a believer. You may not profess to know what God's word says. You're setting yourself up for disaster, whether you realize it or not. But if you claim to be a believer, it's vitally important. Like, I, I use that phrase a lot, vitally important, so much so that sometimes I think it probably loses the significance of the phrase, vitally important, But as a professing believer in Jesus, if we don't know the God of word, it's going to bring catastrophe into our lives. Absolutely going to bring catastrophe into our lives. Whether it's because we ignore the warnings in Scripture, or maybe we pursue earthly things such as money or power, control, independence, or other things such as we saw exemplified in our illustration with Jim Jones, Maybe we don't know how to rightly apply God's word. I want you to understand something. It doesn't matter if you can regurgitate a Bible verse. If you don't know what it means in its context, it's going to lead you where you don't want to go. Because if you don't understand the, God, the word of God in its context, as we're going to see, as we saw with the Sadducees, you're going to come to wrong conclusions. And wrong conclusions result in wrong applications. Right? So it's significant that we recognize that not knowing what God's word says is a great danger today for those who are in the church. Because honestly, I don't think that the 909 people who died by drinking Kool-Aid laced with cyanide thought when they lined up to join the People's Temple in Indianapolis that the way their lives would end would be by drinking Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide. Do you wonder if any of those 909 people, if they were given the opportunity to go back to whatever point it was that they joined the people's temple, whether it was in Indianapolis or in San Francisco, knowing that their life would end by poison from cyanide, they would still line up? I have to imagine the answer would be no. I wouldn't. I was just having a conversation this past week with my dad about some things. Man, if I could go back to when I was 18... I could go back when I was 19, you know, whatever. And my dad, he said to me, my dad's not one for eloquent words, but he nailed it. I love my dad. You guys know he's like my best friend, so that's not a knock on him at all. But he said to me, you know, your mom and I were just talking, but here's the reality. You can't go backwards. You can't go back in the past. And neither could these people. So the question is, is there anything that could have helped these 909 people avoid disaster? Avoid suicide by consuming Kool-Aid laced with cyanide? Absolutely. It's a proper understanding of God's word. Wait a minute, it sums off with this Jim Jones guy. 
He's making everybody give up all their stuff. He's ruling as this some kind of like dictator, authoritarian. What, what is the situation here? Not to mention, we haven't even had the conversation about spiritual sign gifts. This guy's out here healing people. What does the Bible say about that? So there's a lot of conversations that can be had, but only when we know what the Word of God says. It's really hard to spot error when you don't know truth. And you might be able to say that you know you're going to heaven because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you believed in him. But that is not going to keep you from falling into error. It's not going to keep you from being deceived. And that's not going to keep havoc and destruction from coming into your life because of ignorance. And that's not a knock. Ignorance is just simply, I say this every time I use the word because it sounds so derogatory, just simply means you don't have understanding. You don't know. There's great dangers to not knowing God's word or to misappropriating it to our lives. And so we must consider some consequences of the statement by Jesus because he says a lot when he says to the Sadducees, you are wrong. Like, That's not something we talk about as it pertains to Jesus, is it? All we want to talk about anymore in our culture and in the world that we live in and in many of our churches is the reality that Jesus just wants me to be happy. It's not what that sounds like. Jesus is literally telling the Sadducees, you're wrong and your beliefs and your thinking are damning you to hell. So if you think wrong applications and wrong interpretations, wrong understanding of God's word is not a big deal, you are sadly mistaken. Because Jesus can be no more clear than this. You're wrong. And to think that not understanding God's word, not knowing God's word, not growing, having, again, we, we've been talking about this in recent weeks, right? Like, none of us just wake up tomorrow and know the word of God. But Is the amount of God's word that you know increasing? Do you know more today than you did last week? Let's pose the question this way. Did you open a Bible and consider, or listen to, that's okay. Did you consider God's word since you left here last week before you walked in here this week? Because if you didn't, and that's habitual, you are setting yourself up for disaster. And at some point, you're going to step back and you're going to look around and you're going to say, but I, I thought Jesus loved me. Never mind that we've completely neglected his word. Like, could you imagine being the people who are in the commune in Jonestown, Guyana, Africa, considering drinking Kool-Aid that they know is going to kill them? Surely some of them said, how did we get here? But it was too late. Disaster had struck. And I'm absolutely convinced that in the church today, disaster is striking all over the place and waiting to strike because we don't know God's word. James, or Peter, not James, Peter very clearly says what? Be sober-minded. So be clear in your thinking. Be watchful. Be diligent. Be on the lookout. Know what is ahead of you. Why? Because the devil is a roaring lion. He's a roaring lion. And he's not just 
roaring for the sake of it. Maybe some of you have seen that video that time we went to the Louisville Zoo and that female lion, I got it on video, and she was grunting at a cat on the other side of the zoo. I don't know if you know this or not, but they say that a full-grown African lion's roar can be heard five miles away. I believe it. Because this female lion was going, and three-quarters of a mile away at the other side of the zoo, there was some cat doing it back. Okay? Now I want you to understand something. When, when James, excuse me, when Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion, he is not saying that he's just growling. His bark is worse than his bite. Don't worry about him. He's just out there roaring because he wants you to know that he's there. No, Peter says, be watchful, be diligent, be vigilant, know what's on the horizon because the roaring lion's desire is to devour you. Listen, the only thing that will prevent you from being devoured by the roaring lion is a knowledge and a a growing understanding of the Word of God. If you don't know God's Word, and again, I'm growing. I don't care what you knew 20 years ago. Do you know it now, or do do you know more now than you did then? Right? Are you growing in your knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures? Because if you're not, you're a prime candidate to be devoured. And maybe you haven't thought about that. Maybe you've been in church a long time, a lot of years. Maybe you've raised your family in church. Maybe, you, you're, you know, maybe you're about 20 and you've been in church your whole life. And you think, oh, yeah, I'm good because I've been in church my whole life. It's not what Peter says, is it? Make sure you're in church every week. Because the devil desires to devour you, but if you go to church every week, he can't. That's his lie. Go to church every week and think everything's great and then be devoured by the devil. We got to get going. None of this is in my notes. (laughs) What does this mean? What does all of this mean? In its simplest form, it means that we must commit to know the Word of God. For ourselves, each of us, every day. Nobody can do it for you. Once a week on Sunday is not enough. Somebody corporately teaching it to you is not sufficient. Each of us must commit every day, individually, for ourselves. I want to give you three consequences of not knowing God's word. And we've actually touched on a number of them already. Three consequences of not knowing God's word. Number one, if you don't know God's word, you'll come to wrong interpretations of it. If you don't know God's word, you will come to wrong interpretations of it. Again, the aforementioned passage there in Matthew 22, this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, we read this beginning in verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. 
In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Again, I remind you, if you don't know God's word, you will come to wrong interpretations of it. Now, as we've noted, Jesus rebukes the Sadducees. And he demonstrates that they didn't know God's word and that they had come to wrong conclusions because of their lack of knowing. And the principle here is that like the Sadducees, if you and I have wrong interpretations of God's word, we will always have wrong application of it. You see, you can only rightly apply what you rightly interpret. And this is very simple to understand. Let's say you're a student who's learning Spanish. And you think you've got this Spanish thing down. And you read a question in Spanish or a statement in Spanish. And so you're ready to rock and roll. And you read it. And you think you understand it. And so you respond to the question by doing whatever it is that the question asks you to do. But if the understanding of the question is wrong then your interpretation of it, because of your lack of understanding, results in what? A wrong application. If somebody asks you for a bottle of water in Spanish and you bring them a can of soup, that's not a right application. And that application stems from a wrong interpretation or a lack of understanding. The absolute worst thing any of us can do is just say, hmm, oh, okay, yeah, right. In Ezekiel 30, God says, I will destroy the idols and put an end to the images in Memphis. Memphis? God's going to destroy Tennessee. But I want you to understand something. You may think I'm being humorous. This is how people approach God's word. Well, I don't know how much you know about the book of Ezekiel, but it's not written about a state in the United States of America called Tennessee whose capital is Memphis. I literally just opened that to a random spot, and that was what it came to, was Memphis. It was fitting, right? So if we can't rightly understand God's word, we can't have right application. And these Sadducees wanted to know whose wife the widow seven times over would be in the next life. And when Jesus tells them that there is no marriage in the next life, that's his his response, his question. When he tells them first that they're wrong, Because they don't know neither the scriptures the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But like the angels are in heaven. Okay? And so the angels are created beings that exist in heaven already. They're not being, they're they're not procreating. They're not being given in marriage. That's the point that Jesus is making here. So these people, when they die and they go into the afterlife, into heaven, in the presence of God, right, that they're not marrying. They're not being given in marriage and and they're not uh, procreating just as the angels are not. And so this is what Jesus tells them. There is no marriage in the next life. And by, by beginning, by telling them there is no marriage in the next life, he's pointing out the irrelevance of their question. Their question is, <clears throat> whose wife will she be, Jesus? And Jesus' answer is, nobody's. Your question is nonsensical. He demonstrates that they've misused the law The book of Deuteronomy, we'll look at in just a second, in asking this question. The whole purpose of this particular law found in Deuteronomy 25 was ensuring that families had heirs to take over and carry on the family name in the event of the death of a husband. 
has nothing to do with the afterlife, has nothing to do with whose husband or wife they'll be in eternity in heaven. It's all about an earthly perspective of an heir to take over in the event that a husband dies. But as we've noted, no marriage in the resurrection. Nobody's married. Nobody gets married. The Sadducees didn't know or understand what God's word was teaching. So they wrongly applied this this law in the law based on their understanding. And I want you to know something. This takes place very, very often in our circles and out of our circles. People in our world, I would submit, know just enough of God's word to be dangerous. Like the Sadducees folks today say that, well, for example, Jesus never spoke on homosexuality. So we can't know for sure how Jesus felt about it. Except Jesus absolutely endorsed and embraced a sexual ethic as defined in the Old Testament. And he even referenced this all throughout his teachings. And furthermore, one of the examples in which he referenced was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So to draw a conclusion, well, when I read the red letters in my Bible, Jesus never specifically condemns homosexuality, so therefore it's okay scripturally, is a terrible conclusion. It's not consistent with God's word. And do I need to demonstrate how a wrong conclusion about sexuality can lead to wrong application of it? I trust I don't because of the world that we live in. How often are we having these conversations? Well, Jesus didn't say this, and Jesus didn't say that. Maybe if we knew a little more of the whole counsel of God's word, we would be a little slower to say, but Jesus never used this word. So he didn't really speak on it. See, not knowing what God's word teaches has devastating consequences devastating consequences that are not limited to just wrongly interpreting it. Yes, we've seen that. Not knowing it can bring you to wrong interpretations. But also not knowing God's word is the issue of temptation. If you don't know God's word, you're going to be overcome with temptation. If you don't know God's word, you will be overcome with temptation. Consider Matthew chapter 4 at the temptation of Jesus by the devil in the wilderness. So This interaction, many of you are probably familiar with this, takes place between the devil and Jesus. And the devil is tempting Jesus, uh, seeking to to trip him up and cause him to sin. And so in verse 3 of Matthew 4, the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In verse 4, but he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Scripture. Verse 6, and he, again the devil, said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot on a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 9, The devil, once again, and he said to him, all these I will give to you. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
See, Jesus is a phenomenal demonstration and example of the significant role of knowing Scripture in its right context. And we're going to talk about this reality, right? So again, we've looked at these references from the temptation of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Every turn, at every turn of this temptation, Jesus appeals to his knowledge of Scripture to overcome the temptation of Satan. And I want to point out specifically the second temptation of Jesus. Because when I read this in verse 6, your Bible might have some notes or some asterisks, or if you have a, a, a cross-reference Bible, you might see that it links you to some other verbs or some other verses. Psalm 91, can you believe that when the devil tempted Jesus in his second temptation, he actually quoted Scripture? Psalm 91, the devil uses to try to trip up Jesus. Again, we saw how Jesus responded. How was that? With Scripture. And as he used the Scripture, he corrected the devil in his attempt to use God's Word. You see, I want you to understand something. It's really, really, really easy to attach ourselves to something because there's a Bible verse written on it. But Jesus rebukes Satan here by, he didn't use these words, we're fleshing it out, by saying, you're wrongly using the word of God. Saying you have a wrong application. In Psalm 91, the psalmist is not talking about, well, if you love God, you can get up on buildings and throw yourself off and the angels will keep you from hitting the ground and dying. And so Jesus pushes back. The scriptures are very clear, Satan, that we don't live our lives tempting the devil or tempting the Father. Putting him to the test is how Jesus would say it. The devil is using scripture out of context. Jesus doesn't take the bait. And he reminds the devil that believers, as we've said, are not to put God to the test because the point of Psalm 91 is that the believer can rest and find comfort in God and his promises and that ultimately nothing and no person can take away the comfort of God. The psalmist is not communicating that we should live reckless lives, that we should, oh, well, God loves me, so nothing bad's going to happen to me, so I'm going to full bore ahead be an idiot. That's a wrong interpretation and then a wrong application of Scripture. And because Jesus knew the Word of God, when the Word of God was presented to him inaccurately, he was not only prepared to correct the inaccuracy, but then to respond to it rightly. And if I'm, I can't, like, it's so simple. If we don't understand God's Word, we, when that temptation comes in, we'll believe any lie. When we're tempted into something or into a situation, we'll believe any lie. Do we know, do we believe God's word? Because the misuse of scripture, it was perfected by the devil. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, he posed one question that changed the scope of human history. Did God really say, did God really say, Eve, I think God just wants to rob you of the best 
you. And Eve, the best you is found right here in this fruit. And when you eat of it, Eve, you will be like God. And he just doesn't want you to be like him. See, the misuse of Scripture on the heels of one lie, did God really say, is a major issue today. And oftentimes it leads us to giving into temptations. God wants me to be happy, so it's okay. God has a good plan for my life, and this is what my heart says, so I should do this. Now, I want you to understand something, because I believe... In our context in the church today, when we talk about temptation, we typically reserve it to temptation in a sexual realm, okay? And we usually lobby it specifically at men, although this is becoming increasingly an issue for women in the church as well. But it's not, temptation doesn't just come in the form of sexual temptation. We're tempted all the time to lie, steal, manipulate. I can't tell the truth because what if it hurts their feelings? So it's probably better for me to lie. Well, maybe it's just a candy bar, so it doesn't really affect anybody if I take it. Well, it's only the government, and they're crooked anyways, so it doesn't matter if I don't report my taxes with honesty and integrity. You see, we're tempted all the time. Yes, very much in the world we live in, the arena of temptation is in the form of sexuality, okay? But we're tempted every day to lie, steal, be, be mishonest, deceive, manipulate. God's word is what prevents us from falling into, into temptation, to giving in, being overcome with temptation. So we must know it. Because perhaps the greatest tragedy of not knowing God's word is that if you don't know God's word, you won't know Jesus. And I'm not, this isn't me saying if you don't know what God's word says, you're not a believer. I, I don't know your heart. I can't discern your heart. I can barely discern my own half the time. So I don't need to try to discern your heart to demonstrate what scripture teaches very clearly. If you don't know God's word, you won't know Jesus. I'm not reducing this just to a salvific per perspective. Yes, it's going to be really hard, I'll just be honest with you, to have a saving relationship with someone you don't know, you don't understand, and you don't have a growing understanding of. But if you, if you claim to be a believer and you don't have a growing understanding of the word of God, then how do you know the heart of God? How do you know the compassion of God in your life? How do you recognize God's grace and God's mercy and God's goodness? How, how do you recognize the patience of God with us in our just stupidity? We don't. That's the short answer. If we don't know God's word, we can't know the heart of God. And if we can't know the heart of God, then we really can't know God. And Jesus himself, he kind of impacts this for us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. 
I didn't come to do away with them. I come to fulfill them. The interesting thing about this portion, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 of the Sermon on the Mount, the interesting thing about this portion is that Jesus absolutely obliterates the notion that the Old Testament is irrelevant to believers. You see, the law and the prophets is the whole of the Old Testament as we know it. The law, of course, is the Pentateuch, or the first five books and the, of the Bible, and the prophets would comprise the rest. The poetry is what we call it. We've got some historical books in there, but the law and the prophets is how the Old Testament was regarded. And what's amazing about all of them, the law and the prophets, is that what they do is they actually point us to Christ. We don't interact with them or engage them or know them apart from Christ. They point us to Christ. From the messianic passages that point specifically to him, to the Old Testament sacrificial system that would point to Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, as well as Jesus perfectly embodying the wisdom literature when he came and lived his exemplary perfect life. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. When he came, when he lived a perfect life, he fulfilled everything that the Old Testament pointed towards. He didn't do away with the Old Testament. I love how the NLT interprets it. It says he came to accomplish its purpose. He came to accomplish the purpose of the Old Testament. And obviously, as far as the New Testament is concerned, we have the life of Jesus in the Word of God lived out and how the church functions in light of uh, that life being lived out in the New, New Testament letters. Every bit of Scripture is to be explored, examined, and understood. And I don't care how old you are today, you could spend every waking minute of the rest of your life and you will not fully exhaust the Word of God. And that's not meant to say, well, I really don't need to worry about it then because I can't really fully know God. The only shot you've got of knowing God at all is his word. And he's done a miraculous thing by us for preserving it and handing it down to us so that we might know him. God's word isn't about us, it's about Jesus. God's word is the means whereby we know God. And so if you don't know God's word, then you can't know God. How well, be honest this morning, how well do you know God's word? And again, that's not limited to, well, I know what this verse says, I know what this verse says, and that's, again, I don't, I don't want to minimize or mitigate scripture memory, I think that it's important. But it doesn't do us a lot of good to memorize a bunch of scripture outside of its proper context and understanding of the passage in which it's a part of. Because if we don't understand it in this context, we've already seen we're going to come to wrong interpretations of it, which is going to result in wrong applications of it. How much scripture do you know? I would submit to you this morning, it would be better for you to have a full understanding of the range of what Paul is communicating in Romans 1 through 3 than it is for you to have Romans 3.23 memorized. Most of you, if you've been around church at all, could tell me that Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true. But do you guys know that that's a summary statement that Paul is making after the first three chapters of Romans demonstrating that everybody is guilty before God? 
And he fleshes out how. And he fleshes out why. He starts with the Jews and then he goes to the Gentiles. Romans 3.23 is a summary statement. If all we know is the tagline, Romans 3.23, and not what's being summarized before it, is it really making a difference? And that's just one example. Don't hear me say Romans 3.23 doesn't matter. And don't hear me say that you shouldn't memorize Scripture. Hear me say you need to know the full counsel of the Word of God. You need to know God's Word in its context. Do you have a good study Bible? It's a very simple tool. Probably costs you 50 or 60 bucks for a good one. You can get them cheaper than that if you look. 50 or 60 bucks, and you can find a good study Bible that has notes that helps you have understanding. Oh, man, when Jesus was talking about this, he was, you just use our, our, our Matthew 23 passage this morning. I learned this week that this question from the Sadducees is from a law that's written in Deuteronomy 25. I don't have it all figured out. I'm learning. I'm growing in my understanding of God's word. But there's tools. A good study Bible, for example, will flesh that out. It'll tell you who the Sadducees were. It'll tell you what the Sadducees believed. It'll tell you about the error in their question of Jesus. How well do you know God's word? Do you know a little? Do you know more than some other people know? Do you know any at all? When we consider knowing God's word, it's pivotal that we realize that knowing the word of God is the foundation of the Christian life. I'm convinced many people believe the foundation of the Christian life is being able to say that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's not the foundation of the Christian life. The foundation of the Christian life is the word of God that gives meaning to the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. We have to know God's word. And so it doesn't matter if we know more than others. The goal isn't to just be the most knowledgeable. The goal is knowing the God of the universe more each and every day because in his grace and in his mercy, he revealed himself to mankind through his word. If we don't know the word, we won't know Jesus. So what do we do? Do we just begin a quest of knowing more facts about the Bible? I've just got to read my Bible more so that I can know more stuff. Do we simply memorize God's word so that we can know lots of verses? I would encourage us this morning to consider changing how we see God's word. That's where I would submit we should start. Because by knowing God's word, we can rightly apply it to our lives. We can ward off temptation, and most importantly, we can know God. As our approach to God's word changes from some stuff that I should know to this is how I have the privilege of knowing the God of the universe. You see the difference? Well, I go to church, so I should know this stuff. So I'm going to try to learn some facts. When we went to Bible college... When you first get there, you take an entry exam to determine how much you know. And when you leave, you take an exit exam to determine how much you know. I want you to understand something. I don't care how much you know when you leave Bible college. It doesn't mean you're in step with Jesus. It doesn't mean you're in tune with the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't mean that you're any closer to God than you were when you came in and took the entry level exam when you knew nothing. 
The purpose of God's word is not to know stuff, it's to know God. And as our approach to God's word changes, we have to start forming habits, like taking in his word regularly, studying it, knowing it, and by way of those things, knowing him. We have a tremendous opportunity this morning to consider these things. As we've talked about, you know, knowing God. How how well do we know God? How well do we know God's word? And we have a great opportunity this morning to consider some of these things as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together. God's word has invited us into fellowship with him through Jesus. And perhaps the greatest privilege of the person who is in relationship with Jesus is the privilege of communion. We get to do what Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is what he told his disciples in John 13. And so as we prepare to do this today, I want to encourage us to take a moment and to reflect upon our lives as we prepare to partake. How well do we really know God's word? How well do we really know God? How well are we living out the truths that Scripture teaches us? Here at Dale Bible Church, many of you know, we, we observe what's called open communion. You do not have to be a member or a partner with Dale Bible Church to partake. We believe that the only requirement of partaking is that you've trusted Christ for salvation. We believe that that's what Scripture would teach. And so we believe that if you've trusted Christ, then we invite you to partake with us on the basis of what Scripture teaches. There is a caveat to that. The reason we pause every time we partake together is to examine our own lives, to examine our hearts, to examine where we're at before the Lord. Are we right before God? Like, Do I really have a relationship with him or do I just know some stuff about him? Is my life being lived out in consistency with what his word teaches and what he would desire for me as a follower of him? Or am I just kind of doing my own thing and I'm at church on Sunday and I know Jesus died on the cross, so yippee-ki-yay, let's take communion. Sad reality is that's how a lot of us approach it. Well, it's the first Sunday of the month and we take communion, so I got to take communion. Paul issues a very stern warning to the Corinthians. He says, you can't approach the Lord's table in a way that is a mockery. You're just heaping the judgment of God upon yourself. And remember, Paul is writing to believers at the church at Corinth. And so we take this time, every time we partake, we take a a few moments to reflect quietly, to examine ourselves, to examine the reality that we get to partake proclaiming that we know him and that we are in good fellowship with him. Is your relationship with him growing because you're learning more and more of him? Is there sin in your life that you need to deal with before you partake this morning? Sin is a serious issue. So much so that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by absorbing the wrath of God. That's why Jesus was crucified. To absorb the wrath of God. Enabling your sins to be forgiven. That's, again, that's different than Jesus died for my sins. That's a byproduct. Jesus died fulfilling the will of the Father, absorbing his wrath for his glory. Jesus took sin seriously, and we should too. So let's quietly reflect for just a moment as we prepare to partake together.